This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer to peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Welcome back to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. This week's guest is a two-time startup founder and a Forbes 30 Under 30 alumni. As founder and CEO of The Scale Lab, Youssef Al-Kadoui helps companies to grow by finding them new clients, but we're not here to talk about his resume. In this humbling interview, Youssef reminds us that life is configured by undetermined rules and unclear paths, and that it's ultimately up to us to define ourselves. In this episode, Yusef discusses the impact of growing up in a developing country, moving to Hong Kong without a plan, and the rise and rise of growth hacking. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, let's get going. Welcome, Youssef. Youssef, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks, Michelle. Really excited to be here as well. Awesome. So, you know, you and I connected recently via LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the awesome work you were doing in sales and growth hacking, I knew I I had to have you come on the podcast. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Well, thanks for reaching out and thanks for having me. I must say I was pretty excited to see all the previous content you produced as well. So very happy to be here today. Awesome. Amazing. Great. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I mean, I can say what I'm doing currently at the moment. Um, So I'm the founder and CEO of a company called The Scale Lab. We're essentially a a B2B lead generation agency, and we help companies to find new clients in their industry. So uh, what we do is prospecting. Um, We uh, use LinkedIn and email to find prospects that we convert into clients for companies we work with. I love that. And, you know, I'm so excited to dive into The Scale Lab and and all the amazing work you're doing currently. But I guess I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Interesting question. I I usually think also there's a difference, of course, between where you were born, where you grew up, where you lived. And I think all the combination of it defines maybe who you are as well as a person. So I was born and raised in uh, Morocco. So my father is Moroccan. My mother is uh, Austrian. Um, so uh, you're from Europe. 
And I grew up in Casablanca in, uh, in Morocco. And so I was born in uh, 1990. So if anyone wants to remember, my birthday is the August 14th. So I just turned 30 this year. And ah. yeah, <laughs> not so long ago. And I think it's interesting to, I, I think a lot about the fact of growing up in a developed country in North Africa versus, let's say, maybe in, uh, in Europe. Because first of, um, all, of all, we actually lacked quite a lot of things that I would say most westernized countries had, be it Australia, Europe, uh, North America, anywhere from uh, you know, access to TV shows or TV in general, access to uh, video games, some ways access to education, books. Everything that was new was firstly, I would say, new in the West, and then it was new, new to us. And if you wanted to get access to a few things, you also had to find a way around uh, around it and potentially even go into a territory. I don't want to go into illegal illegal things, but there was, I mean, I grew up in a childhood where uh, we had to crack the Playstations to be able to play with it, uh, where we had to, I mean, download illegal movies if we just wanted to watch them, actually. Uh, this is not the case anymore today, uh, but when we were kids, it was it was the case. I find it so fascinating. I think there is such a difference, as you said, growing up in a developing country versus the Western world, you know, having to kind of be savvy in an early age and kind of navigate all of this, you know, how do you think that shaped you as a child and, and then kind of heading into your teenage years? Like, are there some qualities that you had to develop to just kind of get by? Yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're nailing it at uh, some point in the, in the question. The, um, the fact that you grew up somewhere where you're seeking for a better comfort, I would say, because you don't have it per se, definitely, I would say, is uh, defining parts of who I am today. Uh, and mostly in my entrepreneurial uh, journey as well, mostly because you always have to find your own way. You always have to figure things out on, uh, on your own. And I mean, I grew up with the thought of, I have to go somewhere else and I have to do something else. There's no, and I didn't grow up in, with an idea of there is a, let's say, a clear path. I always grew up with the idea of I have to make my, uh, my own path if I wanted to succeed. And that, let's say, really resonates in, in the way I'm behaving, uh, behaving today. So I'll, I live in Hong Kong today and, and I'm happy to be here. I moved to Hong Kong three years ago uh, without a job, without a company, without anything. It's just I wanted to be here and I, I thought I would figure it out. And that probably gave me the guts to, to go, sort of, and I'm pretty happy with the, uh, with the choice in the end. I love that. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, Youssef, the early years. You know, you, I saw, I think you did a bit of studies in France. I think you went to Rouen Business School and studied the Masters of Management. You know, where did the decision to, to go to France, I guess, come from? You said that you had always had the intention of leaving the country and, and leaving Africa. You know, I guess, was, was French, was France just that normal progression for you or what was that time like for you? Yeah, I mean, so uh, Morocco is also a French-speaking country, and that's probably, um, you can probably hear it in my uh, accent now speaking English. <laughs> Unfortunately, I can't get rid of it. I've been trying for eight years. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, I mean, studying in France is maybe natural progression. I mean, I was lucky to have a European citizenship as well, which makes it easy for me as a Moroccan citizen as well to travel to Europe. It is not a case for a lot, it was not a lot, uh, the case for a lot of my friends. 
for example, who just couldn't go because of immigration issues. So I knew I was lucky to do it, and I had to seize that, that opportunity. I have to be transparent with you as well. Studying business was not necessarily out of uh, choice or, or necessity or anything. It was mostly because it's what I thought was okay at the time and what resonated with me, not, not necessarily because this is what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't know whether a business school would, would have been the, the best choice. It turned out to be an amazing choice. I made great friends, uh, met a lot of people. I made amazing experiences as well, which helped me to go and also, let's say, drive and draw that path I'm on at the moment. I love that. I think sometimes, you know, we just end up in degrees and in at universities that sometimes we're not too sure if it's what we want to do. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they're, they're in a degree that they're just not not really sure if it's what they want to do, but they're doing it because everyone's saying they should go to uni and go to college. You know, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, well, I like to say to my friends that um, business schools, uh, so just the word business school, the uh, initials are also BS, and it's probably for uh, for a reason. <laughs> so I would say, I mean, if you like if you like it, of course, that's great. Go with what, we, what, what you enjoy. But something to note is that no matter what you do, you can always, I mean, come back or you can always take another direction. It is not, nothing you do is forever. Nothing you do is for a lifetime. You can always uh, evolve. So I've had friends, for example, who were with me uh, at the business school who totally changed. I mean, uh, after the first year, they went to do, uh, to become a doctor. Some others became uh, lawyers. Some others just uh, created and opened a, a farm. Many people say choose their paths differently. And I think it's just about discovering really yourself. Uh, and this is talking about what you really want. And sometimes doing things that you don't want to do, maybe you don't know that you don't want to do them, but you find out that you don't want to do them anymore is also part of the process. Uh, you go into, let's say, if I engage into doing studies as a, uh, as a lawyer because I've been told this is what I be, I should, I'm, I'm supposed to do, but I find that I don't enjoy it, then it's part of the process. At least I know I don't want to do that and I can find something else that I actually enjoy. And it's going to be comforting in my choice uh, after because I know what I don't want to do. When you were at business school, was that the moment that you thought, oh, this is not what I want to do? Or did you surprise yourself? Like, talk to us a little bit about, you know, graduation, uh, post-college, post-university, and those first few years in the working world. Like, how did you navigate that time? There's a concept, and I think a lot of you are probably familiar with uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, if you're not, I mean, you can just Google and you'll find a lot of uh, his videos and content. Might like or not, but there was one thing I thought was interesting that he shares with a lot of people who are just finishing their, uh, their studies, who just graduated, is what he calls the five-year window. And the five-year window is simply, once you graduate, you have a five-year window to really explore, trial, test, do a lot of things, because in your typically, I would say, in your personal life, you're not bound to anything. Normally, you don't have too much credit. Maybe you've, you have to pay back your, your studies, depending on what you've, uh, what you've done for sure. You're not necessarily always married. You don't have kids. You might have all of this for sure, but in general, you don't. And this is also a period of time where you don't have experience, so working experience. And you just have to go trial, find your way. Same thing, as I said, about the studies is you might start a first job, but this first job is not a, a job that you're going to ha- have for the next 50, 60 years, no matter how long let's say, your work. It can be. If you really enjoy it, then, then congratulations. If not, then perfect. Just take it as an experience. Make the most uh, 
most out of it. I would say that's a little bit of how I, I was seeing it as well. So my first job was at, um, at Google after graduating. I mean, I really enjoyed it. It was great. Of course, you start to feel like you're still in university because there's so many nationalities. It's, uh, yeah, it's bright. There's a lot of colors. You have free food, free gym, free massages, everything you can really uh, dream of. Perfect advantages. But the job itself, I must say, was not the most interesting. I made amazing friends. I learned quite a lot, but rapidly I understood that if I stayed there, I would probably be doing the same thing for the next five or 10 years. And I didn't see myself growing. So that realization was like, okay, I'm not going to stay here. I need to move to something else. And just try again other things. I went through phases of unemployment as well. I went through phases of doing interviews and projecting yourselves in jobs that you really did want to do. And you thought like, why am I even doing this? And that's fine. That's fine. It's all part of the process of understanding what you want to do, where you want to go. I'm not saying that I've reached it today, but I know that I will continuously go through these phases. Like, for example, if we're talking to a client today that we don't necessarily feel we want to work with um, at the moment, usually it's probably right. We shouldn't be working with people we don't have, let's say, a, a good gut feeling about. It most of the time proved us right that uh, we should have followed our, our instincts. And we will make mistakes. If we make mistakes, we can always readjust. And that's probably the learning that I had from either my uh, university time as well as my first, uh, first jobs. You can always adjust what you do and there's always a way to progress. I think that's so well said. And I think it's something that so many of us have to hear. I constantly have to remind myself that it's okay if we kind of get off track and we kind of have to navigate our way again. Something I find really fascinating about you is just like your energy. You're very quite, quite relaxed and just quite content, I guess. You know, how can we, for one, where does that come from for you? And how can we get or embody a sense of calm during turbulent times, like, for example, current times and, you know, COVID-19, if we're looking to get a new job or if we're looking to navigate our businesses, you know, how can we kind of embody that? Well, thank, thanks, Michelle. I mean, I'll take it as a compliment and I'll also say that I, uh, I'm just mirroring your style. So, <laughs> oh. I mean, you're, pre- you're pretty laid back, of course, and I think you're, you're good at making people feel comfortable. Yeah, so... I mean, I'm not sure, first of all, I'm not sure if being calm all the time is the, let's say, a standard and that you should be calm. I mean, I think it's okay to live with your energy flow. Of course, sometimes going overboard isn't necessarily the most productive or efficient or even emotionally is not the, the ideal. But I don't believe in a constant state of calmness. I don't think... Um, so I do feel alive also when I go through stressful times. Because you have to figure out, you have to surf the ways as they come. Sometimes it's huge. You don't know what solution there there's going to be. But over time, you realize where where to go. I think maybe I reflect a sense of calmness, and it's probably probably right. And this is something I would want to follow as well. Um, what I follow mostly is I always believe and I always trust in a positive outcome. So I mean, it goes against what people call the so the law of Murphy, which basically says any event will have a negative uh, outcome over over time. I would believe that the negative outcome is not the ultimate outcome. And even if there is a negative outcome today, longer term, you can find a, a positive outcome from that. From any situation, it can be a breakup. It can be, I don't know, getting fired or getting into a job you don't want to do or any negative event. There's something positive that you can take out of 
and they'll help you grow. You might not see it today, but eventually in the future, you'll, you'll see it. And that's something that keeps me positive. For example, with um, COVID times, as you mentioned, we've changed the business quite, uh, quite a lot to focus. So we were doing a lot of consulting before, and now we're doing more agency type of work to help companies to sell. Where before the consulting was more face-to-face, of course, there's no face-to-face happening anymore. So we had to, to switch. But with COVID coming, we very rapidly understood, okay, every crisis, any type of situation always comes with positive outcomes. And it's just a matter of identifying what these are and being flexible to change. I think it's never been a successful strategy if we talk about business, uh, never been a successful strategy to not adapt uh, and not change the behaviors given the changing environment itself. So that's what we did. And honestly, I'm extremely happy we did. Um, we 100% pivoted the business about six months ago. So it was in May uh, May 12th. And the business has been growing since then. So yeah, it's a, I would say, proven strategy. So exciting. I think just, yeah, just such great advice. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into your story. So, you know, you've, you've been at Google and then all of a sudden you dived into the startup land and got into VC, I think. And I think that was around the time that you moved to Hong Kong in 2017. Talk to us a little bit about the shift from after Google into uh, startup land or innovation. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's, a, it's a good question, I think, because, I mean, the switch is, uh, is quite interesting. Google positions itself as a startup, but in the end, it's a company that has more than 40,000 uh, employees. It's been around for quite a long time. Of course, they're doing a lot of creative things, but it is still very structured. It is hierarchical in, in some ways, and you work in progression. So what can you do? What are your reviews? And what's your career path, et cetera? I would say going in a smaller structure, first of all, in the startup world and then in, uh, then in VC, was a good switch for me because this is where I could really express uh, my own creativity and take responsibilities. You're, and when you're on a smaller team, I would say you're given more responsibilities as well. And there's only one thing. It's like either you do it and you, or you don't. If you don't do it, nobody's going to be there to carry you or the business is not that big to carry you. So it's, it's just, I mean, it's just a simple, uh, simple fact. And with a small team as well, if you don't do something, it might entail something negative for the rest of the team, uh, which is, uh, of course, not ideal. If you do something positive, it will entail positively, have, sorry, have positive impact on the rest of the team as well. And it's, it's very satisfying to see. I was always, let's say, keen to see the results of my work and see the accomplishments that they would get for other people in the team, for the company, the company as well. Switching to VC, um, so I was, after France, after my university, uh, I worked at Google in Ireland. I stayed in, in Ireland for about uh, three years. And then I moved to Hong Kong. And what I, but the switch was, uh, when I was in Ireland, I was working with a lot of venture capital funds, angel investors from all over the world. So this is how I discovered really the, the VC world. We were helping these companies to find startups that they would invest in. And I was doing that through a company called Web Summit, which is essentially the biggest startup and investor event in, uh, in the world, happening in Lisbon yearly. And from that network that I had, I thought, okay, actually, I could use this network to help a lot of startups to raise funds. And I thought I would do that in Asia because it was a growing ecosystem. There was um, every year there was more, let's say, quite a quite a high increase. I don't have the stat in mind today, and I don't want to say any uh, fake fact. But it was a very high number of uh, startups growing every year who needed also capital to, uh, to grow. So I thought I want to participate in this. 
And when I moved to Hong Kong, this is what I started doing. There's a company that I started called the Bridge VC, which essentially is a bridge between ideas and capital. So the, the principle was to find very good companies who needed capital to grow and match them with, with investors. So that worked pretty well. Um, it's still ongoing today. Uh, actually, we're a bit less, uh, less active because my main focus also is on the scale lab today. Um, but the shift, because your question was really about how does that change? I would say when you're surrounded with other entrepreneurs as well, who are striving and who are fine, like they're going through difficulties quite a lot. I mean, it can be anything from emotional, personal, uh, I mean, from uh, business, business wise as well, going through different crises. It's never easy, for example, to have to fire someone or have to change the direction of your company when your idea was A and actually have to pivot to switch to, uh, I don't know, uh, Z or something else. It's not always satisfying because you ask your question. It was not the initial vision. I'm not sure I want to. I still want to do this, and it's a very difficult uh, situation that a lot of entrepreneurs go through. And for me, it was actually very enriching because I could see all of this when, when you're from the VC standpoint, because you see all of these issues. And I'm trying to take this with me in my current uh, journey as a, as an entrepreneur myself. Mm. I'm just finding this so interesting. I could keep listening. I. I'm curious to know, you know, you were talking about that shift and that you saw these entrepreneurs going through some really tough times. You know, when you moved to Hong Kong, you know, completely new city, different continent, you know, completely different opposite side of the world, and you decided to start Bridge VC, you know, what were the challenges there for you? You know, it, it, it sounds so brilliant when you say it, but, you know, when you get to the crux of it, how did you even make that happen? What were the first few things that you did and how did you navigate that? Yeah, I would say the, the first essential difficulty that I had was uh, cost of living, really. As in, mm, when you're, when you're yeah. starting a business and, yeah, you don't generate revenue straight up, um, so my, the revenue model was that we were taking a cut from uh, a fundraise because we were supporting that. And that was a clear thing with the entrepreneurs we didn't want to take a monthly retainer. A lot of people do that, and it's—I mean, if you're comfortable with it, it's fine. We just didn't feel it was—it um, was right to take, the, say, uh, that revenue until we actually successfully fundraise with the entrepreneur, so we could then split the uh, split the pie. But a fundraise, as most of you might know, doesn't happen, let's say, overnight. It can take a year, two, even sometimes more. Um, so thinking about not having an income for that long was quite difficult, especially in a place like Hong Kong, one of the most expensive cities in the, in the world. Yeah, I mean, to be, to be very honest, and I'm, I don't mind saying it, I, I did crash at many friends' places. I'm lucky I had friends. I'm lucky I met people as well who just casually said, hey, look, I mean, I know you're, you're in a situation where you're building something and you need to save. Come at home. I stayed for, at a friend's place who was, tra- who was traveling for about two, three weeks. She just gave me her room and I was like, yeah, fine. And I was flexible with this. I was actually happy to go through this journey because I thought to myself, I know that I'm doing something that I believe in. I feel fulfilled. And eventually I will think about this time and I'll probably laugh about it. I never thought, Michelle, that I would say it on a podcast. And it's the first time I do. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. When you accept these things, I would say that you are going through a phase potentially of discomfort. And you just, I mean, when I say accept it, it's really okay. I'm fine with it. I know it's not going to be a a standard for the next years or for the rest of my life. And it's just a phase that I'm going through. I find it okay. I'm okay going through these phases because I know that the outcome is more is more positive. So that was probably, so cost of living was probably the first thing I had to think about on a daily basis. 
And then the reason why I did it in Hong Kong as well is, I mean, Hong Kong is well, very well positioned geographically. Doing business in Hong Kong is actually pretty, uh, pretty good. Um, legally, it's quite easy to create a, an entity, for example. Meeting people that are extremely senior and that can help you is also very easy. People are extremely welcoming and willing to do things. There's like a bit of a go-getter atmosphere, I would say. It's a very dynamic place. I don't know if you've been or anyone who's going to listen to this has but I, I highly invite you to do to do so. You like you can just feel the energy really. I couldn't agree more. Hong Kong is is definitely one of those places, and I really appreciate you being so open with us and sharing. And I think, you know, that's the value that really these kind of conversations bring. I mean, you know, it's all well and good to see the beautiful shiny Forbes under thirty or you know yeah. founder CEO. And you know, I think what we're trying to do here is break down the the stereotype of that and and really talk about what what it really takes. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. So I guess a question I've got off the back end of that is, you know, for our peers out there listening who maybe they've got that vision or that kind of goal and and they can see something that they're passionate about and they want to build, but maybe they don't have the confidence or the courage to actually do what you did, which was take the leap and leave your comfortable job at Google and, you know, move across the world or start a company, you know, what what advice would you give to them? What would you say to them? Yeah, well, I think I mean, and, and I'm I'm not trying to play humble or false, or like being falsely modest or, or anything. Um, it's not. I didn't. I never thought it would take courage, or I never thought of myself being brave or courageous or anything. I just. Uh, I, I think I was just like maybe stupidly optimistic, or I was just optimistic in, in general. And I think it takes that optimism because a lot of the times, of course, we are scared to to change and scared to change the lifestyle that we currently have and potentially even fail. A lot of people, I would say, don't go and don't follow their dreams or anything because they think they will fail. But, I mean, failure itself is a concept. It's very subjective. What do you define it, it to be? Why do you think you, you'll fail? And there's one thing I really want to say, and that's I've been having this conversation with a few friends lately, is the first business that you create might not be the, uh, the, the last one, or it might the idea that you have today might not be the same next week or in a year, and it's going to evolve uh, the only way to find out is just simply to start. Do something today and you'll see where it's going to lead you. And it's definitely going to lead you somewhere. It's not going to happen on its own. And I would say there's nothing you can lose, really, literally nothing. You can only gain experience, joy, learnings, anything. The, the outcome itself will always be positive. I love it. Amazing. So, you know, if we dive a bit deeper into it, and I want to talk about Scale Lab, but before we do, I think, you know, I, I saw that you did, from moving on from your company, Bridge VC, I saw that you did quite a bit of work in just the HK startup ecosystem. You know, what was it that propelled you to start a business of your own during that time when I think you were working at a company called Meta? Um, so talk to us a little bit about Meta and then the transition into the scale lab absolutely yeah no, happy to do that uh, so meta is a uh, it's an entrepreneur club that is based out of hong kong as well as uh, kenya nairobi and they'd had an entity in thailand and uh, in bangkok um, the idea of it is was to create a network of entrepreneurs across asia middle east and africa that would let's say help each other 
whenever they were starting a business. For anything, let's say if you start a business or you already have a, uh, a company, you always need support. If you're expanding, you need legal support, HR support, audit, sales, whatever that is. And you could connect with entrepreneurs like you who probably went through the same struggles or are undergoing the same issues at the moment. And you could really, let's say, grow together. So that was it was a kind of a sort of a safety net uh, that you could uh, that you could join. A really good company, very good atmosphere. I mean, amazing people to meet. And for me, it was a sort of trampoline, really, because I jumped in there and it propelled me uh, up because I met so many entrepreneurs uh, who they say advised me on how to create a business, where where to go, what to do. And simply, when you surround yourself with people who are also going through either trouble sometimes or uh, growing their business and uh, and evolving, you're, I mean, you, it just becomes the standard of your surroundings and join not being in there, you're not in the standard. So to me, it was quite an easy transition from a meta to doing, so to starting the scale lab itself. And I never thought I would not do it. It wasn't a surprise. I knew while I was working with meta uh, and talking to all of these entrepreneurs that I would start my own company again. So uh, the Scale Lab is actually the third company I, uh, I start, and it's the one that necessarily generates most of the, the revenue today. Yeah. So interesting. So let's talk a little bit about the idea for Scale Lab. You know, where did that come about and how did that come about and what were the first few steps that you took to get it off the ground? Yeah, I said, I mean, uh, at the start of the podcast, so the Scale Lab itself as a business uh, pivoted. When I started the Scale Lab, it was last year, and I started it as a innovation consulting company. So I was planning to work, and I did work with different corporates to help them really adopt a startup mindset and a startup way of working. So um, agile working, design thinking, some people listen are familiar, uh, familiar with these methodologies, but essentially these are methodology, program managing uh, or project management methodologies that just help you build a project from A to Z in a more efficient and a faster way as well. And a lot of the corporates were trying to transition to this type of, uh, of working because they were evolving slower than startups that, that were growing a lot, taking up their market share, taking up potentially their customers, etc. So they had to adapt. We did some really good work for the first, I'd say, six months until uh, COVID happened and until consulting, for example, was not uh, something that companies were focusing on. The idea was always helping companies to grow. So, of course, we took the corporate angle. We did work with uh, SMEs and startups as well because they had to adopt also these uh, ways of working. But the focus was always, how do we help companies to grow? Uh, how do we help them to grow better, faster, uh, in a more efficient way? So, eventually, what we're doing today, being a B2B lead generation agency, was just a natural uh, transition because, I mean, I was always in sales or in helping companies to find clients in uh, in the end. And I ju we just adopted a lot of the growth hacking and methodologies that we were seeing in various startups, even at uh, at Google and also at the, the sorry, within the VC time I, uh, I did with multiple startups. And we thought we have to productize this and make it accessible to uh, to companies. So what we do essentially today, when we work with a company, we really jump on board we're together with the founders in general, with the CEOs. The, so the biggest companies we work with uh, today are about two, 300 uh, people, big companies. And we really help them define how they will generate their sales. 
and how also they will execute it at the, at the end. So it comes in a longer term report with them, really. What does your passion for sales come from? You know, it's got the term has got a bit of a stigma around it. You know, if you say oh, I'm in sales or although I feel every entrepreneur is a saleswoman or man, you know, where does your passion for that come from? And, and what do you think about that stereotype and breaking it down? Yeah, I think, I think when you talk about sales, you're right. I mean, pe- people are very uncomfortable with it because they always think it's, you know, that aggressive person who's going to say force you to, uh, to get something and buy and be very pushy and maybe arrogant as well, etc. I mean, to be honest, nobody buys and you shouldn't as well buy something that you don't want to. So the salesperson's role is not necessarily to force you to buy something, but is, is to get you, like to help you get something that you, uh, that you need. If you don't need it, I mean, of course, well then goodbye. That's, that's fine. And it might, let's say, link back to, uh, myself growing up in, uh, in Morocco. So Morocco is a developing country and depending where, where you live, the atmosphere is a bit, uh, a bit different. Uh, so I grew up in Casablanca, which is the economical capital. Same thing is very like a hustle and bustle, quite busy place. Uh, you have to, let's say, haggle with uh, with everything. And everything I, every time I come back to Morocco, I go to this black market called uh, Derbralef. If you go to Casablanca, go there, you can find really anything in the world. And there, everything is negotiable. There's no fixed price. And I love, whenever I come back to Morocco, it's the first thing I do is I go there just to soak in the atmosphere again of people going around, talking with each other, making, let's say, deals here and there. And... I love, I mean, I love, I, I appreciate negotiating. Nobody, again, I just want to make that clear because I've had this conversation with a lot of friends traveling. When you bargain something, you're not, nobody's going to sell something where they're not comfortable with the price they're selling, uh, selling to. And it's just an agreement. For me, the negotiation part is actually a friendship part. You're creating a friendship because you come to an agreement at the, at the end. Everyone plays with any rules. Some will be will play the sad person, or you are ripping me off, etc. But you won't buy if you're not comfortable with the price, and you won't sell also if you're not comfortable with the price. Long uh, answer to the question of where does it, this passion uh, for sales come from? I think it's a combination of many things. Sales is also about making connections with people, really understanding what they what they want. Uh, I'm never, never going to force anyone to buy something. And I, I don't even think it's possible to force someone to buy something unless you have a gun put to, the, put to their head, I guess. But it's really, for me, about understanding people's problems. It's an empathetic role as well, uh, seeing if there's a way to support. If there, is, there isn't, then there is not. Maybe, maybe it's just not today. It might be in the, uh, the longer run. So I enjoy this process of engaging with people and seeing how we could collaborate. It's a really... For me, it's a collaboration tool. I love it. I think I think you're so right in so many ways around it being just that connection and and collaboration. I think it's almost it's almost so good for us to to dispel the myth of sales. So really appreciate you sharing that. Amazing. So oh, we could keep talking. I've got a I've got a couple of final questions as we head to to the end of the interview. So firstly, I guess. What has been one of your greatest failures that you've personally had throughout this entrepreneurial journey to date? Um, it's a good question because I've had many failures. <laughs> what's, uh, what's the one? I think, I think probably. So when I moved, yeah, when I moved to Asia, I can I can give you the context, and I'm actually I'm fine talking about uh, about this. But so when I moved to Asia, I left 
Ireland. I had a very good situation. I also had a girlfriend at the time, but I left everything. And we, we, like, we split parts, uh, parts as well. So I was on my own. You really have to think backpack on your, uh, on your back, trying to find your way to stay there because, of course, I didn't have a visa to stay. I was only on a tourist visa, so I had to find a job first to be able to stay while I was creating the, the Bridge VC and trying to find investors to help startups uh, locally. The struggle that I had is I had to find a way to survive. As I mentioned, cost of living was really, really complicated at, uh, at the time. So I wanted to find a job to be able to stay somewhere. I had limited savings and I was spending most of my time in Hong Kong and Singapore, two of the most expensive cities in the world. So I was burning through my cash very, very quickly because I had to socialize as well. You have to go to events and you have to invite people for a dinner, a lunch or something, just because you need to make those, uh, those connections. And came a time where I had, I mean, I had signed a job and I thought, okay, I am safe. I'm going to start a new, a new role. But a week before the, the job starts, I was actually traveling because I thought, okay, I'm going to travel because I've been only working for the past three, four months. Uh, and before I actually start a new, a new role, let me just uh, travel. I went to Cambodia for, for a little while and I burned almost all my, uh, all my savings. I had 450 US dollars left in my, uh, my account and I was flying back to Singapore. And the day before I flew back to Singapore, because this is where the, the job was, the company calls me to say, hey, by the way, we decided to withdraw the offer. And yeah, uh, like I was taken off guard, really. I, like I didn't know what to do. I still flew to Singapore, but I was, I was lost. I knew I had really no money left and that the money that I had left would just get me going. If I calculated for, for food for maybe, say, $20 a day, that doesn't take you very long to find also another job and, and do something. I said, that was excluding housing or anything. I went through a phase at this time where I had so no money. I was in a city where that was extremely expensive. I had no job. I had really simply nothing. I, the only thing I had was a friend who uh, gave me her room. So the one I mentioned who gave me her room for two or three weeks. And I went, I think it's the first time I went really through a depression where I thought, okay, I'm not sure if I'm, what I'm doing is right. I always thought I'm optimistic and I will find a way, etc. And here I am, cornered with nothing left, with no option than to actually fail and cancel and say, hey, you got to you gotta get out of there because you're, you're done. But eventually I, I woke up one day and I really, like, I really rethink about the, the situation. I woke up one day and my friend had the, had the pool in Singapore. They all have these, uh, these condos. So I was lucky to stay at her place. And I was in the pool and I was thinking about how bad my situation was. And I just woke up from this dream. I was like, man, you are in a pool in Singapore. The weather is amazing. Your friend gave her her room give you your, your, uh, her room and you're just complaining about uh, not having a job, not having money, anything, get your shit together. This is just a, let's say, punctual situation. It is just right now, but the outcome is going to be positive. So I would say short, because I'm, I've been giving you too long of an answer. Long story short, I mean, I, I got my shit back together. I started recontacting people. I started, let's say, uh, redoing business and projecting myself in a more positive way. And eventually I landed in, uh, in Hong Kong with Meta, with the role, with the company also settled, uh, with deals coming in. And uh, that was, let's say, two, three months after. So I, I survived that. Uh, it was going through bad phase and then, uh, then a positive phase. So nothing lasts forever in the negative and the positive way. And I just have to surf 
every situation because the ultimate outcome is going to be positive. Wow. How can we get better at being uncomfortable? <laughs> Good question. You're making me uncomfortable with asking this question for which I don't have a <laughs> clear answer. <laughs> I like to do it. Yeah, you're good. You're good. <laughs> well, no, I, I mean, being uncomfortable, it comes in multiple ways and multiple phases, I'm, I'm pretty sure. No one wants to live being uncomfortable, but I think everyone wants to, wants to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think probably it's just about trying things. You know, people talk a lot about the uh, comfort zone and getting out of the comfort zone. Comfort is okay. I mean, I have nothing, nothing against comfort, and I think everyone is looking for, for that. But it's, it's also okay to go through times where you're not in control of things and that you accept that you're not always in control uh, of everything and that you have to th- surf these, uh, these difficult waves. There's a, there's a sentence I, I like, which is, stars need uh, darkness to shine. So simply, stars need darkness to shine. And that's a bit of that. I mean, if you want to evolve, if you want to shine, really, you have to go through phases that are a bit difficult. And I think about that quite a lot. Whenever there's something that I know is going to be uncomfortable, I'm thinking, okay, just let it come to me and see what, uh, what happens. Trying to be spontaneous, it'll be okay. I always tell myself, it will be okay. It's going to be positive. If it's not positive today and you go through something painful, it's okay. I mean, you have to go through that. But ultimately, there will be a positive outcome. And just believe in yourself for that. Oh, I love it, Youssef. You've just absolutely nailed it. And I'm so excited for everyone to listen to this, for everyone listening into this right now. So, wow, you know, over the last few years, you've really gone from strength to strength. You know, you've you've been through so many lows, but also quite a few highs. You know, you've received recently received a lot of recognition for your work being featured on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. What are three key pieces of advice that you'd give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? When I was starting out, I definitely had a different mentality. I thought I was in control of everything and I would define the paths and things were built this way and it, everything would, would work out. And I think very quickly you're yeah, you got the grass cut below your feet. You don't know, let's say, you find out that actually things are not always working as uh, as planned and you have to deal with it. You have to deal with your own, uh, own emotions, the, you know, the rejections, the fact of uh, being seen as a failure or, or anything. All of this was complicated. I think advice number one for me is to just try. Honestly, just try anything. Whatever that, whatever that is, just go for it. Don't think, okay, my idea is not good enough and it has to be better at this stage, then I can start it. Just go for it. You'll see what, what comes back to it and you'll handle on time. The second really is for me, be okay with the fact that you're not in control of everything. If you try things, you don't know where things are going. So you have to be accepting that world of uncertainty. And the third, the third one, I would say that's something probably I, I had in mind, but it's always good to be, um, to be reminded of, is as simple as believe in the outcome. It might not be the outcome you're expecting right now, but there are outcomes that you're not even aware of today because you haven't started uh, what you're planning to start and which you'll just figure out. And this is probably the most exciting thing I would have wanted to learn because when I started trying things and then you start meeting different people and there's connections that are created, it's just, I mean, you're just provoking serendipity in the end. And that's what, what happens. But if you stay 
in this situation and nothing happens, you're expecting a miracle to happen. But if you start moving, you start, let's say, getting in motion, this is where you create these opportunities. I love it. Amazing. Look, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Youssef, for the phenomenal work you've done and that you're doing for really showing us, you know, all of us millennials out there, all of us young humans, that we actually can go out there and achieve our dreams and pursue our goals. And and it's okay if we fail the first time or the second time. As long as we get up and keep going, then that's the most important thing. So we really appreciate you for that. Thanks. No, I appreciate, I appreciate you inviting me also to, to the podcast. I, I hope that what I'm saying is resonating with uh, some of you listening. I mean, I'm happy to go further in detail at uh, any other, other occasion, but same thing again. I mean, just make it, make it, do it, try things, believe in yourself. The ultimate outcome will be different from what you're expecting today, but it's okay. And you just have to be comfortable with it because it's going to be positive and enjoy the journey. So amazing. So look, our final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I think the value of pursuing what I'm most passionate about, for me, is really about, about freedom. I think it's, um, it's just being free. It's not necessarily uh, not having a boss or not to say accountable for something, but it's just feeling fulfilled with what, what you're doing and not having to think that I am wasting time or I'm not going through, uh, I'm not doing things that I don't want to do. You will, no matter what they say, do sometimes things that you don't necessarily always want to do. But when I mention freedom, it's really free, free space of mind. I would say it's, it's being comfortable with yourself. It's not always about generating huge amounts of money, but it's just being positive, waking up in the morning and feeling like, oh, I'm doing what I actually want to do and I'm, I'm fine with it and I'm learning and I'm growing. And that actually is why I'm pursuing what I'm, what I'm doing today. Youssef, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, we have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and The Scale Lab? Uh, you can visit our website. So it's thescalelab, T-H-E, scalelab.io. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. My first name is easier than my last name. I hope it's going to be in the description of the podcast, but it's uh, Yusuf El Kadiwi. And you can also reach me over my email, which is Yusuf at thescalelab.io. Amazing, Yusuf. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here to see what else we're up to visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on instagram at thepeersproject we'll have fresh real talk for you next week peers until then if you need inspiration look amongst your peers <laughs>